today's read, A Moment of Silence, Midnight Three by Sister Soldier, Chapter 31, The Unknown. Pack your things, an unfamiliar CO ordered me. Then he handed me a Department of Corrections issued heavy coat, hat, and boots, so I knew I was going to a very cold place. It wasn't charity or concern for me that caused them to make it possible for me to dress warmly. I knew by now that to them I am just a body, a number in their cheap labor system which they fronted off as a network of facilities where men are corrected. They need me to stay alive and healthy enough for them to capitalize off of me. The DOC uniform and winter wear was just a means to an end. I was handed some folded paperwork. Just as I opened it to read, the unfamiliar CO said, You have to move now. You will have plenty of time to read it in the truck. He stood in my cell as I got dressed in the outerwear items he gave me. I was suspicious, though. The maximum amount of time an inmate could remain at Rikers was two years. I had served 17 months, seven of which was no longer as an accused youth offender, but as a convict. I was told that I'd be shipped, flown, or trucked out as soon as there was a bed available for me in the prison system. I wasn't in a hurry, but did notice that Daquan and many of the men in his crew were moved out swiftly, immediately following their convictions. Why were they moving me now? On New Year's Eve in 1987, in less than 24 hours, it would be 1988, inshallah. Everyone in the world knows that New Year's Eve and New Year's Day is a huge holiday. Even the COs I was used to seeing on a daily basis were not working their usual evening shift. They were replaced by unfamiliar faces, COs who probably signed up to grab that overtime holiday paper and do a double or double triple like the she officer used to do. I checked myself. No need to get suddenly sentimental. No reason to say goodbye to CO Williams who made an effort to treat us decently or the other CEOs who would normally be cuffing and uncuffing us, escorting us around, rationing out small items we needed like towels and toilet paper, or forcing us down to the floor, spraying us with mace and then placing a heavy boot on our backs. As I packed my few items, my mind switched. Tomorrow is my first wife's birthday. She will be 18 years young. I began imagining and desiring and wondering. I shut it all down swiftly. I knew thoughts of the future are forbidden to me while incarcerated. For the sake of my sanity, I am only allowed memories, past or present tense. Thoughts of the future were a form of self-torture. I avoid it. I refuse it. My few things were dropped into a cheap sack and tied at the top, including my heavy boots. I walked out wearing my Jordans, the same way I had arrived at Rikers at first. The fact 
that I still had them on my feet was assigned to every man locked and assigned to me also. I was cuffed and controlled, confined and commanded. However, no man could snatch me out of my kicks. In that Brooklyn way, I was undefeated. My cell door slammed shut. The guy I shared the tiny space with said, Fuck you, nigga. I hope your next cellmate is a 600-pound faggot. I smiled. It was the first time he had the audacity to speak directly to me. Coward. Knew I wasn't ever coming back. CO cuffed my wrists, cuffed my ankles, and dropped the chain that connected my hands to my feet. As I walked the tear, it felt like a trail of tears. Men who I was forced to know, who were forced to know me, men who I had made the prayer with before dawn and before the count and during the holy month of Ramadan, men who I had pumped weights with, worked out and shot hoops with, read books with, taught or learned from, shared words with, were at their locked cell doors, calling through the slot. I, black, stay strong. See you on the other side. Respect. Mantante fuerte. Happy New Year. Let us know where you at. No dejes que te vengas abajo. Drop a line. Float a kite. Watch your back. Protect your neck. Aloha Akbar. Hasta que nos encontremos de nuevo, mi amigo. Aluta comina continua. Brooklyn. All day, motherfucker. my face when the heavy doors drew open. There were only 12 steps in between where I stood and the DOC truck. Still, I was able to steal a glance into the night sky which I had not seen from outdoors since being jailed. In the darkness of the winter early sunsets and long nights, the razor wire raised up high on the fencing was the only thing shining. Instead of stars, There was only the momentary sweeping of the searchlight surveilling any unauthorized movement. Snipers were in their towers. It seemed even the moon was hiding out. After a series of baby steps, I got in. On a steel bench, I was chained and seated in the dark. The truck door slammed shut and was bolted, no windows. You're right plenty of time to read my paperwork. It was pitch black. I couldn't even see my own hand. I was the only man besides the driver who was gated up front in the vehicle on the bus that first brought me up to Rikers. We were like a herd of cattle beefed up for slaughter. There had been many men and windows we could see out of so that we were clear what we were missing, leaving behind, and losing. I didn't trust the fact that now there was only me. If anything went wrong, there would be no witnesses, or at least there would be no one to explain from my perspective. Whatever the driver alleged would be considered law. It didn't matter, I told myself. I'm not planning to assault him or to escape. I had no interest 
in becoming a man permanently on the run, a fugitive, someone they gunned down on some deserted highway or tracked through some wooded area or swamp. I'd serve my time and be done with it. Just then, I heard the passenger door of the truck open and then slam shut. When the guard slid the <laughs> when the guard slid the slots open to check on me, I checked also and confirmed that a second DOC driver was now riding shotgun. Two of them, one of me, I noted. Riding off of the Rikers Jail Complex property, I could feel the truck pull over the bridge and the truck engine moan. What lay ahead was unknown to me. Butch broadcast words began streaming through my mind. They gonna do what they do regardless. Once they ship you out of Rikers, you gonna encounter some big, ugly, hateful white boys. They gonna be everywhere. Their arms as big as your legs. They Ku Klux Klan. They hate the black man. You gonna feel that hatred instantly. So thick, you can choke on it. They don't only hate blacks, they hate anybody with a drop of melanin, any kind of color in them. They shave your head with hatred. They'll grab your balls, shove their fingers in your mouth, choking you with hatred. Say they looking for something they ain't looking for. They nasty. You gonna find out. They'll spread your cheeks and drill in your asshole with fingers, with mop sticks, with erect... Because they can, and because they want to, and because they're hateful and jealous of you. In a one-on-one conversation with him once on the yard, I asked him if he minded if I asked him a question. He replied, go ahead, you so quiet, I thought maybe you knew everything already. Nah, that's not it. But I see from your jail number that you first got knocked a long time ago. I'm not asking you what they accused you of or convicted you of, convicted you for, I'm just curious. If a man does time in all of the prisons you say you done time in, what makes that man keep coming back? He just looked at me. Every time I got arrested and tried and convicted, then served my time and got released, I said to myself and to anybody who would listen, I'm never coming back, never going to do time, never going to get locked up again. But turned out, everything I do is illegal. If I'm just sitting on my porch, cops roll by eyeballing me like there's something wrong with that. I'm like, damn, this is my mother's house. Fuck it. If I stand up, they watching me because according to them, I must be about to do something wrong. If I walk down the street, the cruiser's slowly rolling up behind me. They lower the window, ask me a stupid question like, Butch, what you doing out here? I turns around slowly, knowing if I turn too quick, they gonna gun me down. I gives them the answer they already know. I live right there. Seems my answer was illegal, cause they calling me a smart ass, jumping out the cop car, telling me to spread my legs and put my hands on the car. Next thing I know, I'm in the back of the car with my hands cuffed behind my back for resisting arrest. I get to the station. They booking and beating me. They release me after a while. I goes back home. My mother say, Butch, where you been? 
She looking at me all suspicious. I calls my old lady. Figure she'll help me to relax. She starts giving me the third degree. I hangs up. I go to sit in the garage. My father's already sitting in there. And he tells me, boy, when you gonna get a job? But he ain't got no job and ain't had one in years. I wants to get a job, but I figure soon as I walk outside, the whole story starts at the beginning again. And it does. A small town works that way. I get a job at the car wash or washing and buffing cars at the local car dealer or the gas station. Here comes the police, rolling through, asking my boss what you got Butch up here for. Boss starts looking at me sideways. I ain't done nothing but been wiping down cars all day for little tips. Couple of days later, he finds a reason to fire me. I'm walking back home. Cops rolling up behind me asking, what you got in your hand? I don't say nothing. They could see it's my beard. You're supposed to have that in a brown bag, they says. It, it, it is in a brown bag, I tell them. Then how come we can see it's a cold 45 that you're drinking? Then I says, if you could see that, why you ask me what I got in my hand? Butch threw his hands in the air. That's how I became Butch Broadcast. Now, instead of me waiting to be questioned by my mother, questioned by my old lady, my pops, the police, the judge, the parole officer, I just always say out loud what I'm doing, what I see, where I'm going, where I've been, what's happening, and what happened. People think I'm doing it for them. (laughs) Really? I'm just reminding myself. I gotta remind myself. Otherwise, everybody will have me thinking and believing that I actually am a criminal who did something wrong. So you not a New Yorker, I stated, but it wasn't really a question. It don't matter, son. It's the same everywhere. I've been locked up everywhere. That's how I figured out that it's not just me. It's a conspiracy. Everything a black man say or do, even how we talk and walk or sit and chill is considered a crime. I didn't say anything in response to his story. I was thinking, though, that he had to be leaving something out. He couldn't have been locked up in all these places for complete innocence. And no man is innocent. I wasn't expecting a confession. At the same time, I'm young, but not slow or gullible. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I had to have done something wrong to get locked up repeatedly. He smiled. Well, you're right. After a while, I figured out if I didn't do crime, no one would respect me. Why should I live my life as a suspect for no reason? At least, if I get out there and start making real moves and big money, I can live a little, feel a little freedom before they do what they do, because no matter what I do, they're going to do what they do regardless. Man, when I switched it up on them and actually turned to a life of crime, my mother stopped treating me like a retarded toddler. I gave her money. You should have seen her smile. It was all good then. My father respected me once I got my guns and even moved his shit 
out of the garage so I could park my 1966 Mustang Coupe once I took him for a ride to the liquor store in it. Fuck my old lady. I had chicks lined up on the corner acting like they wasn't lined up on the corner just waiting for me to drive up and choose one of them. Even the police showed me more respect for making them at least have to figure out my hustle. Catch me red-handed and get to take something from me of value once they finally caught up with me and made the arrest because you know they always steal something from the crime scene. You know that, right? All I can say, young black, which is what he called me, once I played the role, they obviously had casted me as maybe from birth. Everyone around me was more satisfied than they ever was when I was honest and struggling, so I just kept running the hustles, no matter the territory, and they kept locking me up, no matter the territory. It was better than a slow, unjust death as a good guy who gets no respect, whose life is all lows and no highs. I thanked him for his time and replayed his words. My take on what my take on it was that he believed, based on his experiences in life, that a black man, any black man, has no choice but to play a scripted, inferior position as either the pauper or the gangster, nothing else. He saw the police and the government, their arms and their armies, and their prisons and their prison keepers as being all-powerful, so powerful that they could direct the destiny of men. Based on the complexion of a man's skin, I didn't take it lightly. I considered it as a deadly martial artist whose hands and feet and mind are trained and powerful. In lockup, I had been faced with some situations and had learned some things that as a free man, I did not know, had not felt or even considered before. How does one man prevail in a physical battle when being inside of a wild mob or haphazard riot that is happening at the same time the mob itself is surrounded by men armed with shields, boots, and batons, and chemical weapons. Furthermore, how does a confined and cuffed man, locked in a room with unconfined and uncuffed authorities, bent on not fighting, but fucking violating his manhood, prevail? I wondered, if what broadcast said would happen in prison was the absolute truth, an excuse, an exaggerated fear, or just the way he sees it. I could only remove the sting of Butch's words and experiences and the threat of his predictions of what awaited me and any man headed to any prison in the United States of America with words of prayer. I recited the Fatiha. I also recited the 113th Surah of the Holy Quran, which is called the Dawn, in English and Al-Falak in Arabic. It is a prayer for protection from evil. Then, I said to myself, only Allah is everywhere. Only Allah is all-powerful. Fear no one but Allah. 
I inhaled and exhaled, getting both my body and my mind right and ready and hardening my heart even more than before. The girl was right. We are at war. Not because we want to be, just because we are. The cold cut through the cloth of the DOC coat. The cold raised up and spread out through the steel bench. I was seated and chained on for hours. It caused my bottom half to begin to freeze and then numb. The cold froze up the uninsulated truck walls. I began tapping my feet on the floor to get my blood circulating. The cold cuffs were scraping against my ankles. At least I could feel that. I said to myself, I knew when the cold became so intense that I couldn't feel anything, I'd suffer from frostbite hypothermia, and even some kind of gangrene. Sensei had taught me many methods of torture, how the body reacts and what a ninja should and could do in those circumstances, especially when he could not immediately escape the conditions and causes. I was tapping my feet and clapping my hands together, tiny motions because of the cuffs. I couldn't warm my hands beneath my armpits to regain circulation in my fingers because of the cuffs. My face felt stiff. I needed the ski mask, not for no nefarious deed, but to guard my face and ears from the freeze. I could feel the truck angling as though it was climbing a hill. It became clear that it was not simply one hill and perhaps not a hill at all. We were climbing a mountain, I believe, and I could feel the effect of the elevation on the intensity of the cold and the air quality as I took deep breaths. On an incline, the truck jerked, then slid and spun. Maybe there was snow or ice. I heard the driver's voice, alarmed, but not a full scream. Maybe he just panicked. Now, the truck was paused, but shaking. I had never been in an earthquake, but the rocking of a vehicle that weighed a ton felt like how I imagined an earthquake might feel. The bench I was seated on was bolted to the floor. I was rocking like the motion of a seesaw in the children's playground. Chained, I couldn't get up. Yo, I called out to the driver. I was freezing, tapping and clapping, seesawing left to right, and my body rocking forward for circulation. Yo, CO, I called out again, but nothing. I heard at least one of the front doors open. Good, I thought. But then I didn't hear the door shut. I couldn't hear no talking. Three minutes lapsed. I was shifting for the few inches that the chain would allow trying to get some circulation to my vital organs. I tried, balancing my feet on my toes and bouncing them a bit. Suddenly, I heard the guard unbolting the back door. Finally, black snorkels. The hoods were zipped 
concealing their faces. All but the eyes, but I could see their broad shoulders and M16 assault rifles strapped on, which they held with both hands. A third man, unarmed, walked in my line of vision from around their right side. I was waiting for their order. I was chained to the bench, freezing, and now that the doors were unlocked, I'm even colder. But I could see the stars shining brightly in the night sky. It looked like a different sky than the one that loomed over Rikers, which was now hundreds of miles and hours behind where we were. The one who walked around back did a 180. No one was saying anything. He returned seconds later with some industrial tool shaped like pliers or branch clippers. He approached cautiously. I didn't know why. His team had the arsenal and his back. Instead of climbing up and getting in the truck where I was, he stood outside, leaned in to unlock the chains that strapped me to the bench and snapped them with the clippers, which cut them like they were soft as butter. Jump out, he ordered. One armed guard waved me to come out as all three of them stood a few steps back like I had a hand grenade in my grip or something. I knew I was headed to a maximum security prison and that I had committed a murder. It seemed to me, however, that they were expecting some violent reaction from a serial killer with superpowers who could, while frozen, cuffed, and chained, knock out three mountain-sized men, two holding heavy. My body creaked as I stood slowly, the cuffs iced around my ankles and wrists. I stood up. My feet were frozen and steady, but the truck still rocked from side to side. It was painful to take one tiny step, but of course I did. I felt the truck falling. The unarmed man ran towards me and grabbed my chain and pulled me forward as the truck fell backward and made the noise of metal slamming against rock, crashing. As the truck tumbled, the unarmed guard reached down to the ground to help me to my feet. But the DOC-issued coat I was wearing was stuck to the slab of ice I was lying on. Pull your arms out of the coat, he ordered me. But my brain felt frozen, and my movements were slow motion. He yanked me out of the coat and off the ground, using the dangling chain like a leash. Standing up, unable to control my shivering, I was in only the Rikers jail jumper and thin hat. The unarmed man forced his fingers into his front pocket. He drew out some keys and uncuffed my wrists and then my ankles as one of the armed guards pulled around behind me, pointed the M16 to my back and said, walk. I followed with one behind me and two in front, one slightly to the left, the other to the right. We were inching up a slippery slope that led up a dark and overwhelming mountain. The iced wind was whipping me. Within seconds, I saw another armed guard inching down the slope towards us with a prisoner of his own. My eyes began tearing up from the temperature, not the emotion, but my tears turned to ice in less than a second. 
I looked at the two as they passed by without turning right or left. I didn't want the big white boy guards trigger fingered to itch, pulse, or pull. Strangely, they didn't greet each other. The guards coming and going, they exchanged no words. Once we reached around the bend of what was an iced road in a mountain pass, there was another truck parked as close to the rocks and as far from the drop down the mountain as possible. There was no lettering or logo on that truck, not even the DOC insignia. The back door was already opened. The guard pressed a button and the ramp eased out. Walk up, one of the armed guards told me. I did. He climbed in after me. There were two benches, one on the left side, one on the right. After retracting the ramp, he sat across from where he signaled me to sit with his weapon on ready. I saw a closed tool chest and an industrial-sized stuffed black trash bag. I imagined it held body parts of a defiant prisoner. The unarmed guard slammed the door shut and I heard it lock. It was back to complete blackness. I heard someone climbing on the driver's side and the ignition started. I heard the heat switch on even in the area where we were seated unlike the unheated truck that drove me from Rikers. But of course, I couldn't feel it yet, and that was good. I knew it wouldn't be safe for me to go from extreme freeze to a forced, heated, hot. We sat, idling for more than 10 minutes. It was true what broadcast had said about brain freeze. My thoughts were not flowing like normal. I was unable to juggle the facts of what was happening in the moment and unable to put them in a logical order backed up by reason or at least a strong hypothesis. Fifteen minutes in, I was just beginning to feel the presence of heat. I heard the armed guard seated across from me moving around a bit. Suddenly, he flashed a spotlight on my face that pierced through the darkness and caused my eyes to squint from the shock of switching from blackness to a powerful direct light. I knew then that he wanted to see me and my facial features but did not want me to be able to see him. It worked. All I could do was look away until my eyes could adjust. My unfrozen temperature tears were careening down my face. He probably thought I was crying. Undress, was all he said. I heard some plastic rustling and a bag landed in my lap. Put those on. Then hand me your clothes, he ordered. He moved the spotlight from my face down to my feet. I assumed that was how he planned to monitor my movements. It was warming in the truck now, warm enough for me to begin to feel my fingers and to use them to remove my clothing and change into their prison uniform and what felt like the same type of heavy snorkel they were wearing. I set my mind that, assault rifle or not, if this big guard tried to do anything filthy as I undressed and redressed, I was going to kill him. I was 50% sure that he wouldn't, 
they had uncuffed me after all and rescued me from becoming a fallen, frozen fossil. However, without cuffed hands or ankles in a minute or so, I would be capable of disarming him and without firing his weapon, I would strike him into unconsciousness, then chill quietly. When the guards unlocked the back of the truck, they would be facing an armed, defrosted ninjutsu warrior who did not want to take their lives, but would do whatever it took by any means necessary to survive. That was my plan. The girl was right. In the face of an attempt at a violation of my manhood, it would be freedom or death. Swiftly undressed, the spotlight steadily aimed at my feet, I stepped into the prison jumper. It seemed to be black, although I wasn't certain because other than the spotlight on the floor, there was only darkness. There were wool socks, quality ones like I've seen in the stores that specialize in winter sports and winter wear for camping, mountain climbing, and a variety of seasonal activities. There were gloves, thick insulated ones. There was a real wool hat and heavy boots. I sat them on the floor where the spotlight was aimed. High-techs or vasque, I thought. The boots were either brand. I speculated, but couldn't see or read any labels. I stared down at my Jordans. They were made for cement, like on the streets of New York. They were for basketball courts indoors or outdoors, for dribbling and faking players out, for shooting and jumping and flying and dunking, not for mountain climbing and sliding on sheets of ice or snow. That was precisely why I couldn't feel my toes. It only made sense for me to leave them on the side and step into the heavy boots. I already knew that once we reached prison intake, my Jordans would be confiscated. Rikers was jail. Things were allowed in jail that would never be allowed in prison. I picked up my Jordans, tied the laces from both kicks together, and retired them. Put them in the plastic bag the armed guard ordered. I had dropped everything in there except my kicks. The tennis shoes also, he said. I knew then that he wasn't from the state of New York. Who would refer to Jordans as tennis shoes? He had to be a down south farm dude a countryside white boy. When I dropped my Jordans into the plastic bag, the guard ordered, take a seat. I sat down. He picked up the plastic bag, lifting the spotlight from his flashlight off my boots and back directly into my face. He walked backwards towards the driver, knocked three times on the gate. The passenger side guard opened the slot and the plastic bag was handed off to him. Then he slid the slot closed and I heard the door up front open. 21 minutes in, as I tied my second boot lace, I heard a vehicle drive past the truck we were idling in. It was moving uphill. Seconds later, the truck that we were in pulled out, veering immediately to the left, reversing and heading down the mountain. I thought it was strange that we were heading downhill 
when the first DOC truck I was being transported in spent a substantial amount of time easing up the mountain until it jammed, then skidded, spun, and dropped off the edge of a cliff. It had teetered and crashed downward the same second that I was yanked and dragged by the chain. My brain and my body were thawing now. I was questioning myself as to why the other guard was walking a prisoner downhill on New Year's Eve in the dark on an iced mountain slope. I knew from the sound of the accident of the first DOC truck that after it tumbled and crashed against the rocks, they could not have recovered that vehicle. Even if it could have been towed up the mountain on a powerful cable, there would still be no way to drive it in that condition and absolutely no way to tow it, repair it, and drive it in 21 minutes. Was it a random vehicle that drove past us just now while we were parked? That just happened to also be a diesel engine truck out on a dark mountain road deep into the New Year's Eve night? Or was the guard who was walking down the icy slope with his prisoner walking toward a third vehicle separate from the one that crashed and the one I was being transported in right now? And where were we? And oh shit, my few belongings went down with the first DOC truck and my paperwork was also in the... Damn. And how come these boots fit perfectly? Cancel the last question. The prison system knew all the medical and physical information about me from the day I was hospitalized, my blood and urine drawn, and every aspect of my health tested. Even my weight and height were documented and my fingerprints taken. I reminded myself, Jordan, man. We rode in silence for about 28 minutes. Oddly, as the truck rolled to a stop, someone up front turned on a radio that blasted out bad-sounding music. I could no longer hear if anyone was talking, if doors were opening or shutting, or nothing. After six minutes, much longer than the wait for a traffic light, yield, or a stop sign, we were rolling again, but very slowly. The truck would stop here and there. Now we were moving in a straight line, not turning left or right or reversing. The music was still a loud distraction up until the final point where it could no longer conceal or compete with the thunderous sound of a helicopter that had to be approaching us or was either already dangerously close. The back door of the truck was unbolted and then opened. It felt like a tornado was sucking us out of the truck. The ramp lowered and the two guards guards signaled us to come out. We followed them. I could see that we were on an airstrip. The iced wind came in waves, slapping our faces from all sides. The natural current and the force of what the propeller was propelling was powerful. We each rushed to hood up our snorkels. The Iroquois copter looked wicked in the night sky. The guard behind me and the two beside me broke into a slow trot. Of course, I kept pace with them, believing that our destination must be the copter. The door opened. Without conversation, communication, or consideration, 
they signaled me and assisted me to board. As soon as I got in, the three guards fell back. The copter door shut. The pilot handed me a headset and motioned me to fasten my seatbelt. I did. The vehicle rose up into the sky, unsettling. It felt like I was being shaken up like one of several popcorn kernels in a closed, lidded pot, right before the oil and heat caused it to burst open. But there was no oil or heat. The intense pressure was, in fact, the unknown. Am I being flown to a nearby prison? Whatever the case, I was dry. Without water, which I was accustomed to being without from lights out until early morning breakfast, but I was also without sleep. At the same time, I was experiencing the rush of adrenaline that comes when being reduced to cuffs and chains and then faced with the uncertainty of correctional officers with M16s, unarmed COs with shields and sticks, mace and an unlimited range of authority was more than enough. The heads that I wore dulled the deafening sound of the copter which was speeding at 150 miles per hour but it did not eliminate it above the trees and tallest towers between the few red lights that assisted the pilot's navigation and way below heaven my thoughts were suspended by my amazement of course i had flown on many commercial airlines jumbo jets like 747s i had traveled several thousand miles away and all around the globe however the helicopter was completely different it was raw, like flying through the sky naked, with only a jetpack strapped to my back. Feeling the force of the wind current, and unprotected by the weight, size, and design of the aircrafts that frequent flyers are afforded. In less than half an hour, I saw that we were hovering over a particular area. The pilot was communicating with someone briefly, and immediately after, he began lowering the Iroquois, the craft swinging all the way down. We landed in a snow-covered, in snow-covered flatlands that were surrounded by wilderness. He released my seatbelt, then handed me a backpack. The copter door opened, and he used his hand to nudge me out. I high-stepped a distance to separate myself from the power of the helicopter as it took off, rising back up into the night sky. Once it was way above me and I was left below, I noticed the intense beauty of the starlit sky, the intense beauty of the whitest snow that made the ground glisten like sunlight. The cold whipped me into action. I opened the backpack inside and on the top of several items was a map. I pushed it to the side to examine the other contents. Each of them I knew would be my only clues, tools, and means of survival other than the mercy of Allah. I pulled out a bottle of water there was only one. I found a flashlight and immediately powered it on to see inside the pack and take inventory. 
I cracked the seal, opening the water and drank half of it. It felt like my brain could immediately function better because of it. I pulled out beef jerky, then threw it back, and snatched out a trail mix power bar, opened it up, and consumed it. With the map open and the spotlight on the route it highlighted, I was relieved that the distance between myself and the building marked out as my destination was only a mile and a half away. Alhamdulillah, the copter had most likely landed as close to the place as possible. If I had a parachute, I could have been dropped right on target. That would have been crazy because I had never parachuted before and I had never been to the place where I presently stood, nor did I have any idea where it was other than my hypothesis that I was up north, close to Canada. Raising my knees up high to take my first few steps in the two feet of snow, I thought a mile and a half is nothing on a warm or hot spring or summer day. It's a trek in a below freezing night. Holding the compass, I was headed in a northeastern direction. Shining the light on the snow, I checked for tracks of vehicles or even footprints. There were none. I wanted to run the short distance, but I knew better. I paced myself so the temperature would not defeat me. Half an hour in, I felt I had not gone anywhere, even though I had been trekking. However, the place was now within sight. I became charged with determination. After getting pumped up, I cautioned myself about becoming foolishly excited. Would my arrival at the place, where the authorities refused to face the winter conditions and come out to retrieve me, put me in a better circumstance or worse? And what kind of fool had they caused me to become, to be struggling, to incarcerate myself? I looked back. It reinforced my need to forge ahead. The security of being indoors had to be better than what was behind me. Either way, indoors or outdoors, it would be dealing with wildlife, grizzlies and wolves and mountain lions, the four-legged or the two-legged ones. It was a stone house, not a compound, complex, or a single intake building. Fifty feet away, concealed behind a considerable pile of firewood, that was beside a shed. I checked it out. Either there were people inside who had not come out of the place since their storm happened, or the cabin was empty. There were no tracks in the snow, which was hardened at the top. There were no lights on inside. It had to be almost 4, 4.30 in the pre-dawn morning. So of course, the lights being off would be considered normal, I told myself. There was no smoke pouring out of the chimney either. Still, I needed to announce myself rather than barge in like an intruder and end up getting clapped up, which would have been justified for whoever was either living there or stationed there. What if it was a military outpost? I reached into the backpack and pulled back the one and only red apple that I had seen in there. I hurled it like Roger Clemens. It crashed into the front door before smashing open. I wanted the loud and sudden thud to draw someone, anyone, everyone out. 
nothing happened, not even a hand separating the blinds or pulling back a curtain, not even a barking dog or crowing rooster or howling wolf. I waited some minutes. I advanced to the shed and looked in. There was a snowmobile, a few shovels, an ice pick, an axe, a 50-pound bag of salt, a toolbox, some flares, a horn. More than enough, I grabbed an axe. Then I began my approach. As I pushed down on the latch, the front door opened. I looked in before entering. There was no movement. I stomped my feet to shake the snow off my boots. I brushed the snow off my clothes as well. I reached in, running my gloved hand along the wall, searching for a light switch. I found it, clicked, and a dim light illuminated a living room with an unlit fireplace. I walked along the perimeter, checking each room. Two bedrooms, one bathroom, a living room, and a kitchen. I was only looking for humans before examining any of the details. A loud noise. Swiftly I turned. The front door had slammed shut from the force of the winter wind. A pile of snow had been blown inside. If the loud bang of that heavy door didn't wake up any sleepers, there are no sleepers in here, I thought. Or maybe that is what someone wanted me to think. I cautioned myself. The first floor is clear. I approached the staircase leading up. Removing my backpack, I pulled out a triple-A battery and threw it upstairs to provoke a sound. Reaction or any kind of movement from any living thing. No sound or movement. There couldn't be anyone here unless it was a calm and cool, well-trained enemy laying in the cut for a sneak attack. Pressing one foot down on the first step, I checked to see if it would creak. It didn't. There was a rug runner lining each stair. I headed up. On the second floor landing, I walked right into a network of spider webs that spread across my face and somehow got in my mouth. I wiped it away. Now I was sure that there was absolutely no one here. Furthermore, that no one had been here for at least a few days. Why was I dropped here by helicopter? What type of setup is this? There was a master bedroom and two smaller bedrooms on either side as well as a full bathroom. Hadn't seen a private bathroom and a walk-in shower in a long time. Couldn't even imagine it. Heard CO's voice in my ear giving me only three minutes to clean my entire body. A ladder laid against the wall in one of the side bedrooms piqued my attention. I walked in, saw it was situated beneath an uncovered entrance on the ceiling, a third level, but there was no staircase that led up to a third floor. I dropped my backpack and removed my snorkel and hat and used the ladder to climb up, my hands still gloved, dark, but the moonlight and gleam from the white snow coming through the window gave it some visibility. It was a furnished bedroom, a loft style with slanted ceilings. 
looked lived in but abandoned. I flipped the switch. A mirage. That's what I thought it was. When I was six years young, traveling through the desert with my father, I learned the meaning of that word. My father, who owned all of the finest luxury vehicles, had no qualms about leaving them parked on our estate, undriven, for days, and even up to a week. He is a walker. At times, he walked long distances because he is also the son of a walker. My southern Sudanese grandfather would not ride in any vehicle. He believed that if there was a place that his legs could not get him to, he didn't need to be there. Southern grandfather also believed that when a man does not constantly use his God-given limbs, he is setting himself up for a downfall. So, things that other people saw as progress and advancement like cars, trains, and planes, my grandfather saw as problematic. Riding in cars, sitting in planes and trains, your legs are not moving, he would say. Those foreigners, with all of their inventions, will die young, Southern Grandfather predicted. But... I will live on beyond a hundred years. Watch, you will see, he told the children of the village. My father was grandfather's 19th child. He loved science, technology, innovation, and inventions. The only thing he loved more than that was his father. So, He found ways to please his father while pursuing his studies. In fact, pleasing his father while pleasing himself caused my father to become a skillful thinker and negotiator, an expert in the art of compromise. Ever since my father was young, he planned to leave the village and become part of the global movement towards progress. Before he left to travel to Khartoum, to study at the university, he gifted his father an imported European race bike that the whole village admired. He said to Southern Grandfather, now you will ride, but your legs will be moving. Southern Grandfather gave my father a warm smile and a great embrace. Then he gifted my father a pair of handmade shoes that he crafted himself. Southern Grandfather told father, that if these shoes did not bring him back to the place where he started, he is lost and in the wrong place. Even though my father had his own mind and made his own miracles and achieved and built his own businesses and properties, every now and then he would do as his father did not because his father ordered him to do so, but because he saw his father do it. So, he did it. As a consequence, every few months or so, I would see my father preparing to walk and walk and walk. Because he is my father, I walked also. He didn't order me to join him. I followed because I saw him do it. He walked, so I walked. 
one time on a long journey through the desert at six years young I felt like we had walked a million kilometers I tried to keep up with him but I was way behind could see him and our camel but couldn't seem to catch up I wondered why he did not turn around to see that I was far behind or why he had not invited me to ride the camel but he also was not riding the camel so I didn't ask. I didn't want to say that I couldn't keep up any longer. I didn't want to complain that this time the walk was too long or ask him to stop and wait or even take a break for a while. Thirsty, tired, and with an intense growing hunger, I remained silent and kept walking. When my mouth became so dry I couldn't taste my own saliva, I endured. Alhamdulillah, I heard myself saying when I saw the river up ahead. I wanted to wash, swim, cool off. I dismissed my tiredness and ran until I caught up with my father and even passed him by. When I did, my father didn't order me to stop. He didn't say one word. I ran until my body just collapsed. With the side of my little face pressed into the heated sand, I could see my father tall, calm, and cool, just strolling his long strides. When my father reached where I was laid out, unable to move, he squatted down to the earth and began laughing. His teeth were whiter than ivory, his white thobe glistening in the desert sun. Son, why were you running so fast? He asked me. The river, I said, coughing a dry cough. Water, I murmured and pointed. He laughed again. My father squeezed the canteen and water splashed all over my face before I took a drink. It was a mirage. You were only seeing what your eyes and your heart wanted to see. But son, the river is not there. It never was. I sat up, refreshed from the water he gave me. All I saw then was desert. No river, nor trees, or shade from the power of the Sudan sun. Your father is not a mirage. I am right here. Trust your father. If you are tired, speak up and say so. If you are hungry or thirsty, say so. Don't allow your desire to please your father or your desire for anything at all cause you to rush into a place that is not safe, that is not real, and cannot help you. Allah has given you a father as a guide and a protection until you are the age of man. Once you become a man, you will know then to always be prepared because anything can happen. And you will know the difference between what is simply a deep desire, what is false, and what is real. In the attic loft, I saw a cot on the floor with neat and clean white sheets a folded neat pile of winter blankets and there was a dresser drawer, a desk and a chair. On the desk 
there was a typewriter and a lamp, a high stack of organized papers, and an open holy Quran on a carved wooden stand. I saw books lining the perimeter of the wall, no bookcase, shelf, or stand. I didn't see her, but I could feel her. Or was it a mirage? A deep desire, something my eyes and heart wanted and even craved to see and believe. I felt guilty. I have so many loved ones. Is she my deepest desire? The one I wanted to see more than anyone else. A craving so deep that my mind was playing tricks on me. I went to the closet and slid open the door. I began smelling the clothes that were hanging there. They were winter clothes. When I last saw her, it was summer. All of her clothes were summer wear. Coconut. Traces of her scent in a thick, beautifully woven sweater. I got excited. Expect nothing, I reminded myself. You are a prisoner. Think only of the past. Powerful, pleasant memories. For the next year and a half, there is no future. I am not entitled to yearn, I reminded myself. But then, there it was. I saw her blue phone. I stood, staring at it. I had to go grab it to be sure that it was real. I picked it up. I picked up the receiver. There was a dial tone. Impulsively, I hung it up. Thoughts began racing. Should I phone home? Our queen's house? Nah, that would be creating a trace. Maybe someone wanted me to do just that. Someone other than her. Perhaps an open enemy. I paused. Couldn't get my mind right for some reason. My Shahada. I was staring now at the top sheet of paper on the neat high stack written by Chiasa Hayoku Brown. I pulled the top page to the side. There was a table of contents, 114 chapters, the same amount of surahs in the Holy Quran, I said to myself. I pulled out the last page, page 2777. My mind swiftly began doing the math. She had written at least five pages for every single day that I was away from her. My cold heart began cracking. I flipped to the first page of her first chapter. Of course, her long life story about her young life began with her father. The chapter was titled, The General's Daughter. My eyes began reading her opening sentence. What to do, Daddy? Even if you kill my husband, I will still be a Muslim woman. No honest person receives an understanding and a feeling in their soul and then turns back from it. I could hear her soft, spoken voice, her powerful words expressed so sweetly. And then there was her sharp threat to him. Bring him home to me, Daddy. That is the only thing that you can do for me. And if you will not do that, I don't want anything more from you forever. Not even words. Then 
I know.